0: We're talking about why in here and some of the hardest questions of life, and we've talked about why God, why be a theist, and then we talked about why, why Jesus, why believe the Jesus story, and then finally why Christianity, why get on the Jesus train. And then today we're doing something called What What, where we just field your questions, and I have been honored by the amount of questions I've gotten. We've had this questions at Daylight Church thing, so this, this, this email has been set up for over five years now. And I'll bet we've had 20 questions over those five years. And I probably got 40 questions over the last three weeks. And so you guys are jumping on board with this thing. I felt honored and privileged. And it's a pastor's dream. But it's also terrifying because you guys ask some real, you guys, there's some really smart people in the room asking some really smart questions. And the the series is inadequate in that we're crunching it down to a short amount of time. And now to tackle a lot of these questions so rapidly, just feels, feels wrong. But we're going to do it anyway, just in the, the spirit of the adventure that we've been on. And uh, we're, we're going to give it a go. We're, it's going to be this rapid fire thing where we, the, the idea is to touch on this stuff and, and mostly, hopefully, make you unafraid to ask. If nothing else, I want to be a church, we, we talk about our pillar of study where no question is off the table. And I want us to be a, a church where you really legitimately feel like you can ask anything and not be scared that there's going to be repercussions. There's a lot of churches you can't ask questions in because you're, you're challenging the status quo. And I just pray that we are never that church. But I ask you for mercy today. I've, I've expressed recently, mercy triumphs over judgment is our rally cry around here. And I, I, I expressed recently, right now I'm doing the full-time job as a project manager and the full-time job as a pastor, and now I'm answering all these questions that are the most difficult questions in life, rapid fire and off the cuff. And so if... If anything is said today that just sounds totally boneheadedness or, or heresy, just forgive me. <laughs> I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to tackle this stuff and 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 do it adequately. But please have some mercy today. It's it you know, the number one rule of public speaking is never apologize, but I'm gonna confess that I'm really nervous today because some of these questions are hot topics. And you, you can't even address the hot topics without stirring controversy, no matter which side you fall on or no matter what your answer is. So there's automatically that nervousness caked in with all the rest of this stuff. So just be nice to me today. At the end of the service, tell me I did a nice job. I would appreciate that. But I do want to say I love this stuff. This has been my meat and potatoes for 25 years now, is asking the hard questions and doing some exploration. And my views have changed a lot over that time. I think... As one of the questions is going to show up here in a second is you, you, you've, got, you've got to be willing to change the way you think if you're going to ask questions. It's, it, you have to be able to change. So let's jump right in. I, I started with a softball. Thanks for this question. My wife recently bought two really nice Nectar Twin XL foam mattresses and it turns out they're too soft for me and I had to get a bed that was much more firm. So Nectar's going to refund the money. What should I do with the mattresses that they said we should donate to a church or charity? Do you have any thoughts? My answer is... Yes, I have thoughts. <laughs> so my first thought was Kate Barron. Kate, Kate is out working with the youth right now, but Kate was, Kate was Kentucky's school counselor of the year just recently, and I suspect she would know some really great kids and really great families that could use some mattresses. My second thought is that there, there's refugee ministries in Kentucky and in Louisville that we could donate these to, so come see me, right? Cool, easy answer. How can you explore both sides of an argument and not lose yourself? This is great because it's, you, you threaten yourself every time you ask the hard questions. You threaten your stance. You threaten, you threaten your mind. You know, we, we say in here that cognitive dissonance is the enemy of, of love, and we're, we're afraid to ask questions because we're afraid what road it might take us down. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said this. He said, for here we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead. That's this old Socratic concept is that we're looking for the truth for truth's sake, and we have to be willing to follow the truth wherever the truth takes us. And this is a really hard thing to do. But, if, but I'm a believer that Jesus taught that truth is the way. He said, if you abide in my word, and this, this is a 3D rendering of what Jesus probably actually looked like, not the white guy with blue eyes that you see all the time. But if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the veritas, the truth, will set you free. There is freedom in seeking truth. And so throughout this whole series, one of my goals is that we would be unafraid. That's one of our secret core values here at Daylight Church is fearlessness, is that we're, we're willing to live in a mess. We're willing to ask the hard questions, even if we don't know the answers, we're willing to throw them out there and see what happens. And so I would say just seek the truth and don't be scared. Somebody asked, why is there not more about the elementary, middle, and high school days of Jesus? Where's all this material about the 10-year-old Jesus or the 15-year-old Jesus, etc.? Well, I have multiple responses to this, and one of them is founded in Scripture. In Matthew 13, it says that, so after Jesus, so Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his public ministry, he fasted for 40 days and entered the ministry and was baptized and started doing all these miracles and people started following him around. So what happened when he was 23 or 18? We don't have a whole lot of record about it, but what we do have is after this, these 30 years, he enters his hometown and they're, they're saying, who is this man that has this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, in his own town, and in his own home. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And so the, the idea is that up until the age of 30, he lived in relative obscurity. He wasn't a big shot. He wasn't well known at that point. And Christian theology says that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And when you study the life and teachings of Jesus, what you find is that he, he grew into this concept, not, not the concept, the, the understanding of his own identity. It started at a young age, but he, he, he dealt with the same temptations and trials as the rest of us, and he, he dealt with the Father the same way we do. And so we don't know a lot about him up until he was 30. We have one pretty good story about it. Uh, but Christian theology teaches that Jesus relates to us. He gets us. And he spent 30 years carving tables and hammering nails. And so we don't know much about it. And then it also says a whole lot about the Bible itself. Because the Bible, a lot of times, like in the first chapter of Luke, which we referred to recently, the Bible says we, we saw these things. We experienced these things. We talked to the people involved. We did our homework. We investigated them. And the fact is that those 30 years, the 30 years before his ministry, were relatively boring. There's not a whole lot to tell. And two, they weren't there to see those years. And so they're, gonna, they're naturally going to focus on the stuff that they've seen. John tells us there were many other things that Jesus did. And if every one of them were written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books. So we don't know much about that period. And, and scriptures specifically say there are periods that we don't talk about. There's periods that we're not covering. They cover the essentials. Somebody asked, how did their desperation for a political savior factor into their belief, the explosion of faith following, especially from a critic's perspective? And if I understand this question correctly, I've referred to multiple times in this, how the story of Jesus was different than the story that was expected by the Jews. So the Jews expected a political Messiah. The Jews expected a guy would show up and conquer the Romans and lead the Jews to the the promised land, basically. And Jesus wasn't that at all. Jesus was humble. He gave himself over to death. He didn't start a rebellion. He, not, not, not the kind they expected. He was different. And the reason I think this is important is because if we, if we look at the Christ story as mythological, if we look at it as, as, uh, as a myth in any way, we still, have to, we, we still have to come up with our answer as to how it developed. And the reason this is important is because if it was, gonna, if it was some, just some people that made up a story, the Jesus story is not the story they would have made up. It would have been entirely different story. And so I think it's, it's, not, it's not a slam dunk against you know, against myth, Christ mythers or anything like that, but I do think it's important to, to note that this story is not the story somebody would have made up. They would have made up a different story. We're flying here. There's a lot of speculation that Jesus spent some time studying Eastern philosophy. Taoism seems to echo his message that relates to peace and kindness. Might he have been inclined to Taoism? Taoism predates Christianity, in my understanding, by, by quite some time. And so the question is, maybe, maybe he had some Eastern influence and, and was... When, when you read, it, when you read these, this stuff online, now they're saying that Jesus was a Taoist or that he embraced Taoist theology and was trying to propagate that to the world. And my opinion is, so other religions, even the ones that predate Christianity now, but especially the ones that post-date Christianity, they all want a piece of Jesus. In my opinion, that's because Jesus is the best story out there. It's the, it's the best thing going as far as theology and, and religion, in my opinion. So the Muslims, they get a piece of Jesus. They say he was a prophet. They even say he was a miracle worker, but they say he didn't die on the cross. But they, 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 have, they have to answer the Jesus question, so they do. The Mormons have an answer for the Jesus question. The Taoists have an answer for the Jesus question. And as you, as you go through post-Christian religions, they all want to pull Jesus. The Baha'is want to pull him in as one of their people. The Muslims want to pull him in as one of their people. Everybody wants to try to get a piece of Jesus. And now even the ones that predate Christianity are wanting to get a piece of Jesus. And it's, it's understandable because it's the best story going, in my opinion. Now, in order to do that, these religions have to cherry-pick Jesus. They have to cherry-pick the story of Jesus, and they have to pick the parts that they like and ditch the parts that they don't like. And Taoism has got a, it's a hard road to climb. It's a, it's a mountain that they need to climb that's very difficult to climb because Taoism is a pantheistic religion. Taoists believe that nature is God and that all of reality is the divine. And this is completely different than what Jesus taught, that there was one God and you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in order for a Taoist to claim Jesus as his or her own, he has to cherry pick and say, well, we're going we're to take this parts of Jesus that we do like, that You know, stuff about light and darkness and and right living and peace and shalom and that sort of thing. But then they have to ditch all the stuff they don't like, which is monotheism, which is kind of a big deal where Christianity is concerned. So I I don't tend to think, I, I think Jesus would embrace some of the teachings of Taoism. I think there's some good quality stuff in there. But as a whole, I don't believe he was a Taoist. Really tough question here. What version of the Bible do you use? That was meant to be funny. My current study Bible is a Zondervan study Bible in the New International Version, and uh, it, I, I absolutely love it. Um, I've, I've read the New King James a lot. I've read the Living Bible a lot. I, most of the time when you see scripture on here, it's from the English Standard Version. And, and so what you might find is that I, I tend to think the best Bible for you is the Bible that you're going to read and apply. Uh, as, long, as long as the Bible is one that scholars have gone back to the manuscripts and transcribed from it's probably a pretty decent bet that it's going to be okay for, for, you, to, for you to read and study. Uh, there are paraphrases out there that I think are fine, and they introduce you to the Scriptures, and they help a lot, but you just have to understand their paraphrases. And so when we want to take a particular passage and exegete it out and say, what was God saying in this passage, the paraphrases are poor places to do that. Now, some of the cults have, have Bibles that they've written, that they've added to, and it's, it's, it's very clear they're added to because none of the manuscripts have what they've written into them. Those are the ones you have to be careful about. But if it's, in general, a mainstream Bible, go for it. Lots of questions about the Bible came in, and I am going to put two of them together. One is, do you believe that the, everything in the Bible is literal? I can answer that really quickly. No, I don't. Uh, there's a lot of allegory. There's a lot of poetry. There's a lot of uh, narrative history, so some of that is literal. Uh, there, there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible. There's, there's hyperbole. Jesus said, why do you worry about the speck in your own eye? I, I'm sorry, the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own? Clearly, he was not speaking literally. You don't literally have a piece of wood stuck in your eye. So, so there's many times in Scripture that it is not meant to be literal. Uh, But it says, do you believe some errors could have occurred when translating from one language to another? My answer is, yes, I do. Do you believe errors could have occurred when people had to manually scribe copies of the Bible? The answer is, yes, I do believe that. The Bible was written by man. This was another person. The Bible was written by man and translated by thousands of scribes over time. It's a tainted book. Why should I follow it? Now, the scriptures were laid down in what they call autographs. These were the original handwritten copies from the original people writing them and they were passed around the church and made and then they started what they called manuscripts so manu meaning hand script meaning written so handwritten copies of the autographs and these autographs were were spread far and wide around europe asia africa right and to this and and now we have i don't remember what the latest count is fourteen thousand of these manuscripts something like that and the answer the answer to the the root question is yes over time a lot of errors occurred and so when when you and then anytime you translate from Hebrew into English or from Greek or Aramaic into English you lose context. So something is lost in translation always. So the copies that we have are not the autographs and nobody ever claims them to be the autographs. Now what you'll find are charts and 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 skeptics will do entire websites dedicated to how many errors are in the scripture and, and and it's actually the process that gives us such great confidence in what we have in our hands and in our phones. These thousands and thousands of scribes, they would work by candlelight, and they, would, they worried about what they call every jot and tittle. So when you see the scrolls that we'll lay out, I've seen them. They, the manuscript, they'll, they'll roll all the way across this room, and the, the, these monks would sit by candlelight, and they'd look at the, that one manuscript, and they'd copied it diligently, and they'd try to get every little dot. And in the Greek language, every little dot. It's not like us, if we miss a comma, something's wrong. This, a, a missing comma in the Greek could change the text dramatically. So they were very careful, but they still blew it. So almost every manuscript you see is going to be different than another manuscript if you compare them. However, let's pretend for a second that I have... And I've used this example in here before. I, I, I don't know if it'll be exactly the same, but Aunt Ethel passes down her recipe to my family for the perfect sugar cookie. And it's the sugar cookie in my family that everybody loves, Right? And my, my cousin Dave and my uncle Bob and my Aunt Ethel all get a hold of, of these recipes and they take them, right? And they pass them down to their kids and those kids pass them down to their kids. And, and now we don't have the original recipe anymore. All we've got is the, the, the Johnson family over here has their recipes that they've hands, handscribed for so long. And the, the Davis family over here that has descended from my aunt has theirs. And this one we find that it probably had something dumped on it early on, some grease stain that fudged out some of the recipe. And this one over here, somebody didn't like how much flour she was using, so they marked it out, and they put put extra flour in the recipe, and then that got passed on. But here's what happens is, when we take the the Johnsons, and we take the Davises, and we take this family and this family over here, and we put all of them together, it's super, super simple to find out what the original recipe was. That's what we have in the scriptures. We have a whole lot of manuscripts with a whole lot of errors. But when the 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 Arabic the Aramaic version I'm sorry not the the Arabic version when the Arabic version and the European version don't match up, but then there's another version over here, and they all come together. It's super simple to say, well, this one had a smudge. You can track it down through history and say, this one was smudged. Or this one had an interpolation. Somebody didn't like what was written here, so they marked it out and put something to the side. And when you see them all together, which we can, the manuscripts are there to see, it's super easy to find out what the original recipe was. So it's actually the thousands and thousands of scribes over hundreds and hundreds of years that give us great confidence in what we have in the Scriptures. Now, I want to say this. We have to be careful about what we see Scripture as for, If we look at it as a phone book where you open it up and you find the information that you're looking for and you apply the information that you're looking for, you're not treating Scripture as it was meant to be treated. Some of the stuff in Scripture is prescriptive, meaning you're supposed to do it. Some of it is descriptive, meaning it tells you what they were doing at that time. And it takes a lot of study, and it takes a lot of work to figure out which is which. It's there for reproof, correction, and instructions in righteousness and establishing doctrine. But we don't worship a book. It's so important this is said. Christians have never worshipped a book. The book tells us who to worship, and that's Jesus. Jesus said it himself. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. We don't worship a book. We worship a person, Jesus. And the book reveals Jesus. And so we have to be careful how we... So when we say, why should I follow it? Well, that gets into a whole lot of interesting linguistics about what you're even talking about. You're supposed to follow Jesus, and the book will help you do that. Tough question here that I don't want to spend too much time on, but the slides are going to be long. In church, you said that you don't give much credit to survival of the fittest, pointing to the example of human trafficking. Wouldn't the reverse actually prove survival of the fittest to be credible? In essence, the human social structure of laws and culture creates society, which is a mechanism to ensure survival of the fittest and give the best best chance of survival for a particular societal group of people and for the human species as a whole. I point to the wolf pack as an example, and he goes on from there talking about the survival of the individual versus the group. And then he says, so speaking of humans, wouldn't it most fit fit to be the ones who can adapt to the larger societal structure? And through extrapolation, wouldn't the human species be fitter for survival than other species because of our larger population societal structures? And so, so essentially what this is saying is part of the reasons humans are the fittest, the best survivors, is because we've learned to work together, right? I think, I think that's kind of summing up what, the, what this argument is. And I tend to agree. And I, I don't want to spend too much time here because I don't, I don't find this a super compelling argument in favor of Christianity, except to say this, that if survival of the fittest were the actual grounding standard as to how we establish morality, what the point i was trying to make was i would expect that those standards would look different than what we what we see now yes it's helpful that we help one another but if survival of the fittest was actually the mechanism why not clear out the nursing homes why not every time a down syndrome person is born execute them why not human trafficking when it would propagate human seed and we could you're getting into Arianism when you when you talk about survival of the fittest as the as the standard And and again, I I don't find this super compelling. I find it metaphysically satisfying. Um, If naturalism is the reason for morality, we can't actually say that rape is evil. We can't actually say that killing a Down syndrome baby is evil because there's no such thing as evil because evil is a transcendent thing that requires volition, and volition is not within naturalism. Volition volition requires... Naturalism is, by its nature, deterministic, which means you are a product of your DNA. You do what your DNA tells you to do, and this has to be the core of naturalistic morality. And if we're doing what our DNA told us to do, we didn't have volition, and therefore what we did was not actually evil. And so I I just think morality is best grounded and explained by Christian theism and not by naturalism. Moving on, if God knew everything and we were created to love him, and we were, aren't we just pawns in a game, being created to worship him sounds like selfishness on his part, especially if he knows what some people will go through, which in turn does not seem like God or seem of God. I don't believe God created us to worship him. I, agree, I believe God created us to experience him. And experience him, the natural response is worship. Worship is a gift to us, not to God. God is complete already. God is all in all, through all, bigger than anything we could imagine. Our worship is not a gift to him. Except that it's relational and he exists in relation in perpetual relationship as a trinity God, Father, Holy Spirit. God, Father, Holy Holy Spirit, Jesus in trinity, he is a relationship and so it satisfies something relational in him is it's it's almost like God had to do this thing because he's relational. But he did not create us to be pawns that line up and say, oh, you're so great, so that he can feel better about himself. Instead, he created us to be people with volition that he can love and love well, and we can respond to that and enjoy him. The Westminster Catechism says that our our job is to glorify God and to delight in him forever. We are the art of an artist, not creatures created to make the artist feel good about himself. We are the natural extension of a great artist. How do I reconcile believing in Jesus and his miracles while not believing in the ark or the whale or some of the other stories in the Bible? Great question that I think about pretty often. And all I can say is that one method of figuring this out is to look at literary genre of scripture. For example, the book of Job. Now, Job is a a story that sounds pretty kooky, really, if you think about it. God and the devil are hanging out one day, which seems kooky in and of itself. And and God says, well, check out my buddy Job. Job is awesome. Job, Job does what's right all the time. And the devil says, yeah, well, if you would torture him a little bit, he probably wouldn't love you quite so much. And God says, well, why don't you go torture him? And the devil says, well, I think I will. And he goes and tortures him. And, and it's a kooky sounding story. And in my opinion, it was never meant to be literal narrative history. But if you look at the genre, it's a poem. It's written as an epic poem. Now, when you look at the genre of Jesus, you've got Luke saying, hey, we did our homework. Here's who we talked about. Here's who I talked to to get this information. Here's where the, the pool of Bethesda is where this miracle happened. Pontius Pilate, the procurator of the city, was the one talking to him. So he goes through and, and states times and places and stuff that if these stories aren't true, is incredibly risky that you're trying to establish a religion founded in reality that never occurred. It's really hard to pull off. And so I do believe there are some stories that were just meant to be allegorical. They're just fables. They're mythologies that are meant to mean something to us. But I do believe that the stuff with Jesus was literal narrative history. It's a a tough question. We can talk about it more if you'd you'd like. Let's do lunch. I have four minutes to answer 84 more questions. So here we go. (laughs) N.T. Wright wrote that the idea of going to heaven being the end goal is not an accurate reading or interpretation of Scripture. The big idea, he seems to suggest, is rather that the kingdom came to earth through Jesus. Now he continues to come through us. Through Jesus, your thoughts. I tend to agree with N.T. Wright on this. Uh, there's, a, there's a word in the Greek, aranos, which is this, is, this is what's translated in scriptures as heaven most often. And it's the vaulted ceiling or the vaulted sky or the region above this, the realm of the gods. And so when they, the Greeks talked about the aranos, what they, they were looking at the stars and they were saying the gods are out there somewhere. that's what we're talking about. So they would talk about the heavens, the place above us, and the earth, the place where we dwell. And you find that through scripture. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and so forth. So in Scripture, you don't hear a lot about heaven as the final resting place of the saved, like, like Western Christians have typically interpreted it. Uh, instead, you find the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom is broken down into the morphemes king and dumb, king's dominion. It's the king's dominion is the place where heaven is. It's the, the dominion of heaven, the, the dominion of the place above us, right? So you hear that a lot, is the kingdom of heaven, the dominion of God. And then you hear the new heaven and the new earth. And so Revelation talks about how I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The place we dwelled and the place above that was gone and it was something new. So it's not a place where angels sit on clouds playing the lyre. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a new tangible place that we live in for all eternity, which ties into the next question. If time and matter must coexist, what does this mean for eternity? I've always thought of eternity as being outside the realm of time, but then that must mean there is nothing material in our lives in eternity. The streets of gold, the gates of pearl, wouldn't that all be figurative rather than literal? In my opinion, the answer to this is that eternal does not mean without beginning or end. It means without end. So we talked in the last few days, in the last few weeks, about how time, matter, and space are co-relative, and there had to be a beginning, right? So now we have this beginning, and it goes on forever. Not that we are timeless beings that will live in a timeless place, but that we were created with the beginning, and went on forever. So it just requires redefining eternal. Um, gosh, I just don't have time. I'm going to have to skip some. I want to get to maybe the most important stuff here today. Regarding Luke 11, didn't God give... So we talked about this passage where Jesus says, which of you, you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead? If you ask for bread, would you give him a stone instead? And he says, God is good. He'll take care of you. And regarding that, it says, didn't God give Adam and Eve a snake in the garden? So a serpent. So God gave a serpent is, is the interpretation here. God made Lucifer knowing that he would rebel and tempt Adam and Eve, and what kind of good gift was that? And then it ties into these other questions. It says, Why does God allow children to get cancer, suffer, and die? How can I put my faith in God? Excuse me. How can I put my faith in God when he gave me cancer and humans cured me? How can you reconcile a loving God with situations like having a mother who is giving up on life? and stays sick don't we call Jesus these are all different questions that I got from you guys don't we all don't we call Jesus king of kings I know we do so doesn't doesn't there need to be a bit of control in the mix doesn't God set the universe into motion and if so shouldn't he have control now I have exactly one minute to solve the greatest problem (laughs) in the universe is the problem of suffering and I I'm, I'm, gosh, and we don't have the weeks to come, coming up to make this happen. Um, let me say this. There's, a, there's an emotional factor to this question, and there's an intellectual factor, and they don't get along. They're not good bedmates, the emotional answer and the intellectual answer. And so on the emotional side, it sucks. It hurts. Kids that get cancer, in fact, in my conversation with an atheist here in front of you guys, my buddy Abe Brummett, I said one of, the, one of the hardest evidences against Christianity, in my opinion, was pediatric cancer. I mentioned that specifically. Is where is God during, during all this? Where is God when a mom is giving up and doesn't want to live anymore? And, and the answer is he's right here right now. When we go back to that question of where was Jesus through those 15 or 30 years, he was right here right now experiencing the same stuff we experienced, watching the Romans brutalize the Jews uh, to the point where they were killing two-year-olds to try to get to him. So he was in the mix. Now there's an intellectual response that is completely inadequate to answer the emotional question behind it, so so I want to mostly just say, I feel you and I believe Jesus feels you. Cancer is uncool. Cancer is not great. It, It does seem that we've been handed some bad cards and we're expected to play them out and win the game. Now, with that said. Jesus seems to, be, seems to show, well, let me say it this way. Christian theology from beginning to end starts with this world is not the way it was supposed to be. And then you get into the question of God's sovereignty and control. And I'm of the opinion that, and a good friend of mine here in the room, we've talked a lot about this, is determinism plus cancer equals an evil God. One of them's got to go either determinism or cancer, and cancer's not going anywhere. Or you've got to embrace an evil God. And I believe Christianity shows a good God that revealed himself and said, I'm here in the middle of your cancer epidemic, and I'm going to make all things new. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to fix this in a flash. Bear with me. And here's what, here's Here's the founding concept behind it. The serpent, the serpent that was given to Adam and Eve, whether you take this as allegorical or whether you take it as narrative history doesn't matter where this is concerned. In my opinion, it was the great shockingly the greatest demonstration of God's love in all of history. Because to love is to give freedom. To deny freedom is to deny love. And this being, whatever this thing was, was given the freedom to either be great and wonderful and loving and kind or to be evil and awful and terrible and destructive and that was a real choice and in my opinion it took the poor road again totally inadequate totally doesn't answer the question and oh my goodness i've got so many other good questions here um i'm, I'm gonna talk. we're gonna go a little bit long I've not been baptized because I've been told in all my churches not to be, and the other being the extreme hesitation that I sort of have of labeling myself as a Christian, admittedly because of the perception of Christians and what it seems like the vast majority of their views and attitudes towards LGBT people and minorities. And then another question. In a world where many Christians use Jesus and the Bible to justify bigotry and hate, I find it hard sometimes to identify myself as a Christian. So many churches and Christian groups claim to be for the betterment of the world while simultaneously hating LGBTQ plus people. So many Christians' websites will write articles about serving your husband that basically amounts to a wife being a servant and to sound cultish. Another person, so three people in the room, took the time. So how many other voices are in here? I I guess my question basically comes down to how can I disagree with so much about, quote, mainstream Christianity but view myself as a follower of Christ, which I do. I agree. Uh, Christianity as a whole has done a lousy job when it comes to relating to and loving the LGBT community, and dealing with the the concept of racial minorities and systemic race, racism, specifically in America and so forth. I, I'm just, I'll, I'll just say we've done a crappy job and we need to do better and we need to fix it, right? Now, with that said, my encouragement would be don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is that There's a mire that Christianity has become in a lot of sense. And, and I love the church. The church has done a ton of tremendous, wonderful things. So don't mishear me. On that. But what I am saying is Jesus established a life that was meant to be lived out in community. The trick is finding the right community. The trick is finding a community of Jesus followers who handle these issues well and who love one another well. And that's not an easy trick. It's not easy to find. But I'm, I'm hoping and praying that Daylight Church will be a church that handles this topic well, that we'll reach across the aisle, that we can love one another well, that we can disagree well, that we can hash this stuff out, that we can throw it out on the table and talk about it. And still love each other and treat each other well. And there are other churches doing it, and I would encourage you, don't give up on Jesus because Jesus' followers have been crappy sometimes historically. But look to Jesus and then let him shape the path that your life goes down. And then finally, this is the last question I'm going to tackle today. Does God or Jesus understand we are trying our best and our best isn't enough? That sometimes we are pouring ourselves out to the point that we can't pour anymore? And that when we fail, we aren't trying to be mean, but we are struggling to maintain hope? in a world where hope is lost. Struggling to maintain hope in a world where hope is lost is the, basically the founding principle of Christianity. Like you're, you're really close to the kingdom of God just by asking this question. Because Christianity indicates that this world is sinking. This world is done. Now, as far as us trying our best, I feel like that's not accurate. I don't think there's anybody that tries their best. I think there's people that try, but to say try your best seems disingenuous to me a little bit. I don't try my best. I doubt you try your best too. But God is merciful and Christ showed mercy. The words of Jesus on the cross, "Father, forgive them; they don't know what they're doing," to me is the center, the center focus of all of Christianity. God is good and in the middle of our mess, he's watching and he cares. And he he even loves you the fact that you don't try your best. He still cares about you and walks with you like a good father would to a son. In Hebrews it says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This world that is collapsing, that is lost, is not our home. And Peter describes us as sojourners and exiles. We live in a world that is not our home. And this world that is collapsing, that is without hope. And it's okay to say that. This world has no hope. You're going to die. Every person you love is going to die. And if you're lucky, you'll die before they do, so you don't have to watch. This is a world that is going down. But that's the, that's, that's the foundation that Christianity builds on, is what do we do with a world that's going down? We trust. We become sojourners there. We don't belong there anymore. This is not our home. This is not our world, and this is not the, the end of the story.